If you're like me, you might be aware of the concept of memory. You may even be aware that there's different types of memory. You're obviously aware that it falls under the, the construct of some cognitive assessments, but that might be about it. That might be all you know, if you're like me. So, unironically, I've brought on the Memory OT onto the podcast this episode, Alison Brush, to have a conversation about her work, uh, memory itself, and the specific areas where OT can really have a massive impact to those who are living with some kind of uh, memory issues. So, sit back, relax, and see if you get as much out of this on as I did. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Well, I think... Similarly to a lot of people, OT was not my first career choice, not because I was against it, but just because I didn't know what it was. Um, I, through my whole high school career, I was set on being a preschool teacher. So all through high school, I did like Votech programs. Um, I started working part-time at a daycare my last couple of years of high school and then switched to an early learning center right after I graduated. Um, and my first two years of college, I really pursued that. So I dove right into an early childhood education program at a community college near where I was living. And one of the classes was in uh, like a special education course. And we were supposed to go and shadow a teacher who had um, like, you know, a a greater population of special education students in their classroom and just kind of see like how everything integrated together. I absolutely cheated on that assignment because I could not find anybody (laughs) to partner up with. So my dad at the time had a colleague whose wife was working as a speech therapist in the school system. So he connected me with her and I shadowed her. And that was when I really learned what OT was because she co-treated quite a bit with the occupational therapist that was at the school. And so I thought, you know, this, you know, might be maybe more what I want to do. So I started researching a little bit more simultaneously, we had a family friend in our church whose adult daughter needed home health assistance, um, just like an aid to like help her with ADLs, IADLs. Um, And so I took a part-time job there with her as well um, and really was doing a lot of OT things. I just didn't know that that's what I was doing, right? And as I researched more and kind of dove more into what OT can do across all population types. I was like, this is absolutely for me. And so I transferred to a accelerated five-year master's degree program in Bangor, Maine. And that, that was it. That's now we're here. (laughs) So you went from, so you're working with like an older population now, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. So you went from like wanting to be a child, like a kindergarten teacher to like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And older adults, that population also kind of found me um, versus me finding it, right? Because when I was a student in the OT program, right, you have to do your 40-hour observations kind of early on in the program. One of them was at a skilled nursing facility, a 
quite large one in the area. And the rehab company there was hired by one of the bigger, like massive nationwide rehab companies for the, yeah. the country. Um, and so they have tons of recruiters, right? And the summer after that program, I think I was only three years in um, out of five total. And they emailed me the summer after and they were like, here are some OT jobs in your geographical area. And it absolutely read like a mass email, right? Like they're just shooting that out to everybody. Yeah. But I took a stab in the dark and I'm like, I'm two years away from graduating, but I don't want to like miss out on an opportunity to potentially get an OT job. Yeah, 100%. So I emailed back and I said, you know, Hey, I'm graduating in 2017. Can't take any of these jobs now. Can you like contact me or am I able to contact you when we get closer to that time? And within the hour, someone emailed me back and was like, absolutely. Like I'll file you under my 2017 grads. Like, where do you want to be geographically? Like we'll figure it out. Uh, fast forward to the spring right before graduation and I get a call from a recruiter from that company saying that there's an opening at a skilled nursing facility 10 minutes from my parents house which is where I was planning on moving back into after graduation so I had a couple of weeks between our last classes and graduation so I went home interviewed and you know it felt like there's no chance that I'm gonna get this job like this is just an opportunity to practice interviewing. I'm not even technically job hunting right now because I haven't even graduated. Um, and while I was there, you know, the rehab director gave zero indication of how he felt about me. So when I left, I'm like, yeah, like this is just a practice run. Like no big deal. It's fine. <laughs> no confidence I get home. Yeah. I get home and my parents are like, so how did it go? You know, we're chatting, whatever. And my phone starts ringing and I pick it up and the recruiter's like, they would absolutely like to offer you this position. Like let's go over benefits and things. And I was like, because you just when you haven't really like started job hunting you're yeah. like what even is the protocol in this situation like we're just going for you know, it right away right exactly yeah but you know it the the thought of further job hunting and potentially missing out on that opportunity was like well they're offering me a job i haven't even graduated this will be a guaranteed place to start anyway and then i can figure it out so i took it and i stayed there for five years um which is just so funny how it all worked out. But I just totally fell in love with the older adult population. They're just so funny to work with, fun to work with. Um, I think people who don't work with older adults all the time don't realize how much potential they have to yeah. really engage in therapy sessions. But they're they're great. I love them. Just, just because it's not something... Skilled nursing facilities, can you just explain what that is? Because it's not something, it's it's either not something that exists here or we call it something else. Okay, yeah. I think so it's, it's, it's a very, I hear lots of Americans talking about SNFs and I'm like, I don't know if it's something that we have and we just call it something else or. Sure. Yeah. So it's American. like a hybrid between a nursing home and a rehab facility, right? So traditionally, people who are retirement age and older are the ones that go there. Um, if you're younger, you're probably likely going to get sent to more an acute rehab facility yeah. before going home. Um, but it's sort of that in between for older adults from transitioning from the hospital to home. But half of it is a skilled short-term rehab. Yeah. And the other half is long-term care residency. Yeah. So okay. in you know, big facilities, you've got separate units, one specifically for memory care, one that might be more just... Um, people need a little bit of assistance, yeah. one that's the skilled rehab. Uh, some of them have assisted living facilities and independent living facilities attached to them. It just depends on okay. how much 
um, square footage they have in the building, right? But yeah, I think that's uh, by the sounds of it, it's the equivalent of in Australia what we would call a, a nursing home. Um, yeah, where there's essentially yeah, it's a medical staff and they do they can do rehab. And there's different uh, areas within that depending on uh, I guess level of need of the the individual right. and that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, I've just always wondered whether yes. it's something that. Do we have that and it's just we call it something else and I don't know what the right. people are talking about or is it yeah. something completely different or what's going on? But no, that makes right. that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. So did you go so you went straight into one of these positions? When did you yeah. sort of realize that I guess memory in particular was your your thing? Mm, yeah, so the first couple of years, I just was like flying by the seat of my pants trying to figure it out. Uh, fortunately, I had an OTR above me who okay. was really supportive. She had a ton of experience in neuro rehab. And so just understanding like really how the brain and the body interact together. I learned so much from her because I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily felt confident in that area coming out of school. Yep. As the team kind of transitioned they hired on an SLP who was just so great with memory care. And she and I worked together on a lot of program development things along with the other people in the department. And that was when I really started to see the potential that OT has in memory care and just how fun it is, how versatile it is. Um, I, I'm trying to think, I think it was a year before the pandemic started we like okay. really dove into program development and I actually volunteered to work like not a full overnight shift, but I went in, I think like four in the afternoon and I stayed till like midnight or 1am to try to help with sensory needs for okay. some of the, the residents because they were just up at all hours of the night, roaming, looking yeah. for something to do, eating snacks, you know, and then we'd get to, the daytime and they could do nothing because they were just so exhausted. It's going to be like me tomorrow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. So I, you know, just experimenting with some of that program development and realizing, you know, what you can do to benefit the quality of life in individuals living with dementia um, really just became so much fun. And the thing that I looked forward to, the most every day when I went into work. Um, and yeah, now cool. it's kind of become primarily what I am focusing on just because post pandemic, less people are opting for elective surgeries, you know, so we don't see as many total hip replacements, total yeah. knee replacements. Um, people who maybe are sort of like borderline, you know, could maybe benefit from skilled rehab and a sniff, but, you know, probably could do okay at home or just going straight home instead of coming to skilled nursing facilities because I think people just want to spend less time in a medical setting if they don't have to, you know, coming out of everything that we've experienced <laughs> yeah. through the pandemic. So because of that, the bulk of my caseload is now long-term care residents. Um, and, you know, I think people who are coming into skilled nursing now, whether as a new grad or they're just shifting into that, patients that are like the bulk of your um your caseload and then you've got maybe a few long-term care residents here and there and that's really flip-flopped and so part of why I wanted to start sharing more vocally on 
you know, social media is because there are people who just don't understand that therapy is still of value here because they haven't gotten a chance to experience that like I have. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of opened up my, an opportunity for me to just share more about what I've learned yeah, that's over cool. my years. I, know, I mean, that's how, that's how I found you online. Uh, when, yeah. Oh, the memory. I have no idea what this is about. And you, you I think I stumbled across more than likely a reel of some sort because you seem to yeah seem to like your reels <laughs> yeah um and it was like this is actually really sick content and it's mm. like an area that you know it's outside of any area that i've ever worked and it's of interest and i'm like this is cool let's get her on the podcast let's do this yes yeah <laughs> so is the so the memory unit itself is it is it only or specifically for dementia, or is there other, uh, I guess, people with other memory type issues that go there and benefit from it? Or? Yeah. So I would say in bigger facilities, you're going to find what they call a locked memory care unit. So all the exterior doors, you need a key code to get out of the, the yeah. unit, and it's strictly moderate to severe levels of dementia. Um in the facilities that I work in, they're much smaller. So there is no separate locked units. It's yeah. just everybody's integrated into one big build, well, one small building, uh, which for some of the short-term residents is kind of unsettling at times because you might, you know, be there for just, you know, two weeks and you're in the middle of the night sleeping. And this woman who's got severe <laughs> dementia comes like lurking over you to like tuck you in and you're like, what's going on here? You know? Um, so, you know, I think, Traditionally, in those bigger facilities, that's what people think of as is a locked memory care unit. My circumstance, I think, is a little bit more unique, just because most of the buildings around me are smaller. Which which do you think is better? Well, it's interesting. I I feel like depending on who you've got working there, sometimes those segregated, for lack of a better word, locked memory units kind of limit how much external interaction those residents get mm -hmm. of course you know families are welcome to you know come yeah, visit yeah, yeah. and you've got staff that are floating in and out but in the buildings that i work in you know when we do like an exercise group you've got everybody and their grandma there right so those residents that are living with moderate or severe dementia are sitting right next to people who are heading back out into the community they're just here for short-term rehab and so they're I think exposed more to just that sort of regular way of life, which really fosters improved integration into activities because they're, mm. they're able to see other people just live like how we all normally live um, and can just have a better opportunity to socialize and engage with people uh, yeah, we, than we, they would otherwise. We used to see the same thing with like acute mental health units in that similar mm. thing. It's kind of, I mean, I don't think you need a better word than segregated because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, uh, yeah, but then the in my experience, the the best outcomes were working in teams that were trying to essentially keep people engaged with the community and absolutely not, not segregated from everyone else because you know there's obviously risks that need to be mitigated and stuff which can be managed, not an issue. Um, right, but yeah, the the people would benefit most from being out in the community still rather than behind a, a locked door with Absolutely. other people who were also not very well at that time. 
Absolutely. And I don't know how it is in other parts of the world, but I know around here, a lot of people get nervous to um, admit their family member to a skilled nursing facility for long-term care because sometimes residents, you know, especially who are more self-aware, they'll get admitted and they'll have passed away within a month of being there because it's like they just feel like this hope is lost, right? Like, well, now I'm just this inept human adult who needs help with all this stuff and I can't be with my family and all my stuff had to get sold so that we could financially afford for me to live here. And they, they pass away right, very quickly because they're just so discouraged by that. And it, it, there's something about it that just seems to like progress every comorbidity that they have, you know, underlying. Um, and I just, I hate that that's the stereotype because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if, if things were fostered to be more like this is a family of people, right? Yeah. Um, especially, you know, not not to dwell on the pandemic so much, but during the pandemic, family members couldn't come in. So those of us who were there working were the only family that these people had for months at a time, yeah. right? Um, and and that's I think that's where the differentiating factor is. If you're deciding that you're going to foster a home like sense of comfort and community in these facilities, you're going to see better outcomes for people, regardless of if you've got separate units or not. But if it's just, we're rotely going through making sure everybody's eaten, gone to the bathroom and taken their medication. That's when things feel more stark and institutionalized. And, you know, I feel like that's hard, particularly with staffing, because like for that to work, you really would need like the right staff. Absolutely. do that and it's, i Absolutely. think particularly with like a really big service or a really big uh unit uh the, i mean we had a so we had a 26 bed mental health unit there was all up probably over 100 staff that would be on roster and rotate through there mm-hmm. like it's hard to get 100 people that all want that exact same goal and are willing to Yes. work towards it and support each yes. other and support the clients and and that's sort of especially yes. when there's client turnover as well um, yes with you know discharges and renew new admissions and that sort of stuff like that's that's a really difficult thing to foster in that many people absolutely absolutely especially when they need yes. you know specific qualifications to even get there in the first place so yeah you're even pulling from a uh, i guess a more narrow population of people in the community anyway to try and fill those spots and yeah yeah I, I can see that being i mean ideally that's what you would want i would imagine right and i'm sure that there's right. evidence out there that says that's at least close to best practice but right oh i don't envy trying to actually operationally do that that would be a, right. a nightmare right right yeah and it's hard to where you have bigger facilities that that can't hold on to people as well mm. either, you know, with just everything going on in, in our world. I think, you know, when thinking about the question you asked me earlier of which is better, the locked unit or kind of having everything integrated, this, this would be another point for having everything integrated in a smaller setting. Because just in my experience, the staff in those type of buildings tend to have better camaraderie with themselves mm-hmm. and then with the residents as well, because there's everybody knows everybody, right? Everything's in, you know, we're all using the same dining spaces. We're all using the same nurses station. Like we're all just here together. Um, and so you get more of that 
you know, joking around with residents, joking around with one another, yeah. being in communication, and it just naturally kind of falls into place. Whereas those bigger facilities, it's just harder to. I feel like that's just a natural human. I mean, you see that with like small yeah. towns. Like absolutely, absolutely. Any yeah. sort of smaller groups are generally going to be closer, tighter, more familiar with each yes. other, more comfortable with each other, yes. etc. I think yes. that's that's the nature of being human in a lot of a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, memory. I probably should know more about it, but I forgot. <laughs> I had to say that. I had to get one. Well, I had to get yeah. one. <laughs> so, I guess the the big question is, what is it? Because I think a lot of people nowadays kind of try to equate humans to computers so they're like oh the memory is right. a hard drive and like yeah the memories just go in there and then they sit on the hard drive and right is right. that how it works well my understanding which is not super vast you've got your short-term memory your working memory your long-term memory so you get input in and that's kind of immediately placed right into short-term memory. And then your brain decides how much of this do I need to store into my long-term memory and how much of this can I just hold on to for a moment and then let it pass away. Yep. We see a lot, and I think both of us could probably think of examples in our own lives where this has been true, where if you've got a greater sense of emotion tied to information coming in, your brain's going to hold on to it more just because there's all of these other senses that are ignited with that, that external input that makes your brain really hold on to it. Yep. Um, and, you know, neuroplasticity is a huge part of forming memory. So the more that you're engaging your brain in complex thinking yep. and trying to, you know, we think about when we're studying for a test, right. And you just keep, reciting something over and over and over until you've memorized it it's because you're making those little neurosynapses fire yeah. specifically around that piece of information so that it gets stored back into that long-term memory and you can hold on to it and then retrieve it faster and easier um, and people who don't have as great a memory you know either aren't doing that or you know they they're also not nourishing their brain in the way that is going to foster good neuroplasticity, right? So Probably appropriate right. nutrition, appropriate sleep, appropriate stress management, like things that I'm not great at. A lot of people aren't great at, right? Um, I'm feeling attacked. You, yeah. <laughs> uh, personally victimized by the memory unit. Yeah. There we go. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, we think a lot about health and fitness and nutrition in the sense of like our physical bodies, yeah. but there is so much linked between brain health and what you're eating and, you know, how you're managing yeah, stress. And yeah. Um, I think so like, that's, that's kind of, I think with the neuroplasticity thing, like I remember looking into that a number of years ago and one of the big things uh, that was being promoted uh, to, I guess, uh, enable that process was like physical movement, like exercise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I guess, as we all know, exercise is good for you on many levels, but still yeah. uh, many of us neglect it or forget it or it's the first thing that stops happening when we get busy and that sort of stuff. But right. I guess from that neuroplastic uh, point of view, as well as, like you said, the stress management point of view, 
Like the, mm-hmm. there's almost too many benefits to be pushing it aside, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. With I, the the emotional tie thing, I guess that that kind of interests me because I think a lot of people, like you hear uh, people talk about memories being tied to specific. Uh, sensory inputs so like you know Mm -hmm. i heard a song or i smelt this smell or this taste Mm -hmm. takes me back yeah is in your understanding is it more tied to that sensory input or is it the emotion that may have been happening around that time because generally it's like an event or something that they're actually remembering right well i would say it's like the perfect blend of both, right? Like if you have just really fond memories of, you know, every birthday you've ever had, right? And I think a lot of us, when we smell a candle that's like freshly burnt out, we think, oh, that smells like birthday cake, right? Because it smells like those birthday candles that have been blown out. I wouldn't say that, you know, alone where we smell a burnout candle and, you know, our brain just knows to associate that with birthday cake because of the smell alone. But there's also that, happy exciting Mm. feeling you've got people around you that you really care about and so that you know gives you that endorphin boost of like wow this is a really great experience and so together those things create something that your brain really wants to hold on to um and then you know from that you get those long-term memories i know when i was in school i did a lot of just random reading about ways to better recall information on tests, right? You know, and people were talking about essential oils and chewing the same type of gum while you're studying and then while you're taking the test or listening to the same type of music. For me, that only sort of worked. And I think it's because emotionally, I just wasn't super invested in some of that information, right? So we're using those those sensory skills to try to get that memory to spark. Mm. But like emotionally, I'm not I'm only invested so much as to pass this test so that I pass OT school and can do what I want to yeah, do. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that that's just an example there of how no, the two really coincide. I guess because a lot of the the stuff I've heard, stuff I was taught throughout, not not even uni, like other other courses and stuff that I've done mm-hmm. very much try to tie memories like the storage of memories with sensory input because, you know, that's how we're actually taking those memories in is via our senses, et cetera. Um, But, yeah, like you said, I I don't associate, like, specific things with everything that I hear or see or any sort of sensory input that, you know, I might have, whereas most of my especially long-term memories are associated with events, feelings. Even if I can't remember the exact event, like it might be just the overwhelming feeling that'll come over you when you're remembering something, that kind of stuff, which makes me wonder whether there's any correlation. I don't know if there's any evidence out there about whether or not, say, people with a higher emotional intelligence have better memory Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, associating or they're, um, I guess, more in tune with the emotions that are happening about right. whether they're actually like making those links better than right. the rest of us kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes total sense. I couldn't name a specific yeah. research yeah. article that would, if anyone out there you know, wants say to say yeah or nay, it, but just yeah. 
put our names at the bottom of it. That'll be okay. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're working with uh, someone, so so dementia itself, uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar at least with the basics. It's sort of it's degenerative. It comes on uh generally in later stages there's earlier onset mm-hmm. but later stages of, of people's lives so when you're working with someone with a condition that on paper is just going to continually going to deteriorate how, what, what sort of what do you what do you actually do with them with regards to sort of memory stuff like like how does it work what do you do yeah so it kind of depends on where they are in the continuum um, because like you said, it is degenerative. So if I'm starting with somebody who's in more the mild to moderate stages, I'm going to have a better chance of actually seeing some improved recall of new information because their, their brain hasn't been eaten away, so to speak by those plaques and tangles that come with dementia, um, those protein deposits in the brain. Right. Um, So, If someone's living in the long-term care setting, I'm going to focus on, can they get to and from their room? Can they remember where the bathroom is? Can they um, recognize certain staff members and identify them as safe people that are here to assist them with care? If they're going back into the community, then we're looking at what is the most feasible for them to be able to do independently? How much assistance are they going to need? in the community. And again, can they remember, you know, where the different rooms are in their home, where they keep all their self-care items? You know, is it safe to turn the stove on and walk away? Yes or no. Things like that, that tend to, those, those judgment calls tend to become lost as dementia progresses. Um, There is evidence that suggests that with a hundred repetitions of novel information, someone in even moderate stages of dementia can recall that novel information. So some people, I've had staff look at me with new long-term care residents, and we are literally over the course of a couple of days walking from the dining room back to their room up to a hundred times, if not more. Um, And, you know, the nurses look at me like, what on earth are you doing? But by the end of that, that resident can recall how to get to and from both places. Um, So it's just, it's interesting because I think, like you said, the association is, well, this is degenerative. So, you know, where really are we going with this? And, you know, posting about this on social media, naturally you get questions from people who maybe aren't invested in the answer. They just think working with dementia is pointless. Um, But I think, you know, I would ask the same question of that person about someone with something like MS or CP, right? You know, the CP isn't always, cerebral palsy isn't always, um, you know, super degenerative like MS or dementia is. But if someone in their 20s gets diagnosed with MS, Mm. are we going to look at them and say, well, this is degenerative, so we're not going to do anything Mm. therapeutically to help you? We're absolutely not going to say that. And individuals who are diagnosed with dementia have the same right to try to maximize the skills they have as much as possible before the disease really progresses to a point where new learning just isn't going to happen right um do you find that do you think that old older persons are, i guess almost somewhat stigmatized in that way like you were just describing in that like you know if a younger person had a degenerative disease we'd be like let's see what we can do 
Whereas yeah. older people, a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, they've had a good run. Like, what can we do yes. kind of thing? Unfortunately, yeah. And, you know, I've unfortunately worked with some doctors who uh, I will advocate to them about things that I'm seeing in an older adult. And, you know, the response, they don't outright say this, but you just kind of get that sense of like, well, they're old, they got to die of something. Like, what really yeah. do you want me to do? But, you know, I, I just, I, I hate it when people present that kind of um attitude towards it because if you were that older adult laying in that bed is that the response you want from your medical provider no it i I would guarantee that that is not going to satisfy you when (laughs) you know um and yeah the more we get to know older adults and the more we see what they are capable of i think that's when the stereotype goes away right it kind of melts away as you yeah notice how older adults can improve in all areas not just memory but strength and balance and endurance and all these things that therapy's really great at working on you know so on a on a broad obviously each individual person you're working with is going to be different but broadly would you say that the the main goal of therapy with that population would like you're not necessarily out to, I guess, cure what's going on, but maybe life, like quality improvements in life. Absolutely. Based yes. on, I guess, what, uh, I guess, memory functioning is still there or still accessible. Are yeah. you? Are you? Or yeah. are you constantly, even in those times, looking to, uh, I guess, reverse some of the the effects? Quality of life is always at the top. So I, when I write goals for someone, particularly someone who's living in a long-term care setting, so we're not talking about those people who are just, just short-term rehab and they're going home, but someone who's in a long-term care setting, quality of life is always at the top. And I'm not expecting that they're going to show all of these leaps and bounds as mm. far as recovering all of these lost skills. But I'm also not surprised when it happens, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, so often my goals are, you know, they'll be able to tolerate XYZ activity for at least 30 minutes, or they will um, recognize staff members and, you know, tolerate a full ADL routine 100% of the time, or, you know, 90 to 100% of the time. Um, so still keeping that objective information as far as like, time tolerance or, um, you know, number of cues that they need to participate in a task, but not being um, so zealous that like, they're going to be a hundred percent independent and perfect with these tasks. Right. Give me six Um, months. They're going home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I forgot what I was going to say. This happens at least once an episode. I give myself. (laughs) See my memory shot. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, good thing we're talking about memory here. Yeah. Um. So it it sounds like it'll be like obviously quality of life, but also is there anything that you, I guess, from a therapeutic point of view, put in place mm-hmm. to try and I guess slow the degeneration, or is this is that mm-hmm. something that's out of your control or? Well, if we can get individuals to do as much of the task by themselves as they can, Mm -hmm. in my experience, that has 
seemingly slowed some of that degeneration, whether it's actually doing it or mm. not from a um, you know physiological yeah. standpoint, I don't know. Um, but you know, if we look at something like getting dressed in the morning, right? A lot of times in skilled nursing facilities, the the attitude is to just get everybody dressed quickly so that they're down to breakfast, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're not the the mentality and the attitude there is not to foster independence so much as it is to just make sure everybody's cared for. And that naturally will promote more of a degeneration because, mm. you know, if, if someone's just sitting there being dressed and they don't have to, they don't have any skin in the game, they're just sitting there, those skills, you know, when, when people say you lo- use it or you lose it, that really is true, yeah. right? Um, and so when we do things to help foster independence in the routine as much as possible, that helps to maintain those skills longer than it would otherwise. And some of the strategies that I would use would be, you know, like external memory aids. So I might make like a checklist that's laminated, that's up on the mirror that shows pictures and words of each item of clothing in the order that it should go on. Um, I often in my sessions, even if I know someone's going to need help, I'll just hand them the item and then I'll say, if you need help, let me know. And then I won't do the full activity for them once they ask me for help. I'll just get, you know, if it's pants, I'll just get one leg going and then say, okay, now you can do the other leg. Um, And that sort of strategy and approach, because getting dressed is such a familiar task, it's Mm. not this new thing that we've never done before. um, I find that people, you know, naturally are like, oh, right, like, I'm putting my pants on now, so I'm going to do that. And those skills, it, it just makes it easier for everybody to to get those skills done because the person is actively doing it for themselves and they don't, you know, they, they could use some people I've had at discharge. What? Oh, you froze. There you go. I think you're back. We're there. (laughs) I got, Should I? I got up to some people at discharge, and then it froze. Okay, I'll, I'll start back at that sentence. Then. So <laughs> some <laughs> some people at discharge can become a setup assist for something like dressing, right? Um, where you you know the staff go in, they help them initiate the task, give them all the clothing at the edge of the bed, and then check back ten minutes later, and they're pretty much dressed by the end of that ten minutes because you're just practicing those skills over and over. Um, so certainly, you know, it's. It's not just about making sure they're comfortable in the task, although that is a goal, but getting them to participate. Back again. (laughs) It got up to getting them to participate, which sounded like the end of the sentence, but I wasn't sure if anything came after that. What did I say after that? Participate as much as possible for as long as possible. I think that's what I said. Yeah, cool. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so it's very much more, I guess, kind of scaffolding the activity, but it sounds... So answer me this, because this is what I'm hearing from what you're describing, and it might just be that we're using selective examples, but would you say that on terms of, uh, I guess, process, cognitive processes that sort of, I guess go first would sequencing be one of the 
the first because it sounds like a lot of the scaffolding examples you've given are more like sequencing prompts and mm -hmm. like, yeah. so the the actual skill of being able to get dressed is sort of still there it's just mm -hmm. a matter of like oh wait what what do i do next uh you put like you said you put one leg on and then they're like oh yep i can do the rest of this i got that yeah it's sequencing yeah. one of the i guess more earlier it just seems that way is one of the more earlier cognitive processes that sort of goes in my experience yes as yeah. well as initiation okay. and task termination so sometimes like i one time had a gentleman who I would keep, you know, get him started shaving his face and he could not terminate that task. So he would just keep shaving the same spot on his face over and over and over oh. because he just, the way the dementia was, he could not stop. So he needed someone there to prompt him to him. move on to the other side, you know? Um, oh, yeah. But he could still, like, he was standing up at the sink. He could reach over and grab the shaving cream and put that on his face and he could rinse his hands and then dry his face afterward was he but conscious was of that. the fact that that like it wasn't that wasn't right or seemingly yes but also like he kind of he was one of those people that would sort of cover it up so he'd yeah. kind of like giggle and smirk like oh i didn't realize so you're yeah. you kind of think like well yeah I, I sort of feel like he knew that but he also couldn't he either couldn't or wouldn't ask for help with yeah. that. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to say how much he was aware of, you know, not being able to terminate that that one motion. But Do you find, like, what, what would be the early, oh, sorry, the earliest, the, like the youngest person you've you've worked with through your unit? Through the, 55. 55. 55 is the okay. youngest, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I'm curious because I know... Uh, that sort of older generation had a lot of uh, like pride in being able to maintain their, independ maintain their independence, and they mm -hmm. like I, I remember working with people, particularly like mainly when I was on placement and stuff, doing I guess the equivalent of what you guys would call home health, um, mm. and like people of that age, that sort of sixty to seventy age, like not wanting to admit that anything's wrong when very clearly something's. They're not managing mm -hmm. with something. Do you think that, I guess, the next generation coming into that age range is going to have the same, uh, I don't know, I don't want to call it stubbornness, but sometimes it is stubbornness. Um, yeah. That, that sort of, I don't know, trying to hide when there's issues and not wanting to ask for help and being too proud to to accept help and that sort of stuff. Mm. Do you think that's going I to see, come through in the next generation? I would say yes, but not as much. Yep. Um, just in what I see on a day-to-day -day basis, it's the people who are 85 and older who are like, absolutely do not come in this bathroom with me right now. Like, why would you even think of doing yeah. that? Right. Um, and the people who are, you know, 60s, 70s, they get frustrated. I, in, in those those age ranges i find people are less apt to even start the task because they're annoyed that they can't do it yeah but once we get started they're they're willing and ready to have assistance yeah. which is just interesting you know just so fed up with it that like why even do it whereas the people who are 85 and older are like well of course i'm gonna do it and i'm doing it by myself and you're not coming in here to help me you know that's fascinating because I, I feel like that presents like a whole nother challenge for a therapist working in that space in that you're mm -hmm. 
I mean, not that you're not tailoring the activity to the individual anyway, but the fact that there's this whole sort of like other layer of things that need to be like this generational layer of things Mm -hmm. that needs to be taken into account on top of individual differences in how people perform tasks and, you know, obviously the, the different progressions of their dementia uh, and how the different presentations of their dementia and that sort of stuff, different support systems. But yeah, that generational thing on top of that, just, I don't know if that's, I I don't know if there's many other practice areas that have that particular layer as strongly mm-hmm. as in the older adults population yes because like i've worked yes. with, i worked in adults my whole life so that's you know anywhere from sort of 16 to 65 and yeah there's going to be multiple generations of people in that but the work that i've done isn't as long as you can talk to people at their level the work itself wasn't necessarily changed as much by right. the, that generational right. influence whereas i feel like in older adults it, it probably will be a bit more yes yeah and you know what's funny like i'm 30 years old but i will have residents who will ask me what grade i'm in like in the middle of helping them with something and i'm like well i i have my master's degree i've been out of school for six years like you know i thanks for asking though and you know to, to a point, like I, I do kind of have a baby face, so it's not totally their fault and they have dementia, so it's not their fault either, you know, but it's just, it's funny when you present as someone who's basically a kid who's coming in there saying, okay, I want you to start doing this. And they're old enough to be your grand or great grandparent. And they're looking at you like, who the heck are you? You know, like yeah. you're just this young kid coming in here. Simultaneously, you've got people who are in their forties, fifties, sixties who work as nurses and there's almost like this power struggle of like peer to peer because a lot of times i'll find people forget that they're in their 90s and they think they're like you know just freshly 60 and so they're like well you know i don't need you you're my peer whatever it's just it's funny to see how that dynamic yeah can play out sometimes you know to be fair like i'm 37 and when I was sort of in my 20s, I like could almost pick people's ages easily. As I've gotten older, everyone younger looks the same. I'm like, I couldn't tell you if you're <laughs> 14 or 24. Like, yeah, that, maybe that's just a getting older thing. That just, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's a me thing. But yeah, I just, I, so funny. everyone looks the same age to me now. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'll just admit that I'm old and be done with it. I feel like I'm like a, I'm an 80 year old man in a 37 year old body. I think that's what I feel like sometimes. Oh no! Especially when I can't remember things. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So with the memory, uh, there's no known like cure for for dementia or correct. There's no known uh, cause, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I mean, there's some like research some that indicates there could be like genetic links yeah. um, and predisposition. You know, there are certain things that they believe could contribute to more of a heavy onset of dementia. Like, okay. um, you know, if you're kind of things like alcohol, like heavy yes, alcohol use yes, and that kind of stuff. yeah, or if you're you know chronically malnourished throughout your life, yeah. um, you know, certain 
heart conditions and lung conditions because you're you're if your heart's not pumping and your lungs aren't absorbing oxygen well enough throughout your younger years, naturally your brain's not going to get fortified with the blood and oxygen it needs to thrive. Um, so, you know, there's research into how much is that correlated. Um, and, you know, there are, there are certain types of dementia that are specifically linked to alcoholism okay. chronically. Um, so, you know, but overall, especially with things like Alzheimer's and Lewy body dementia, they really don't fully know the root cause in order to pinpoint it as like, if you don't do this one thing or you treat this one thing when you're younger, you won't get dementia when you're older. We just don't know that as of now anyway. Yeah. So for someone who's obviously not like already admitted to like a proper memory unit, someone who Mm -hmm. may not even have been diagnosed, what are some of the early, I guess, signs to to watch out for like you might be i'm thinking about ot's that are working in other areas they're like oh i'm not sure if this person might be starting uh down this sort of degenerative process or or whether it's something completely different obviously we talked about uh like sequencing and initiating being one of the early things is there anything else that you know might be an indication that someone might be starting down the the dementia process well certainly changes in short-term memory um so if you're just constantly forgetting every little thing or every other little thing um changes in critical thinking and problem solving um so practically that could look like you know starting the shower to get it warmed up and then you never go back to actually take the shower or um putting you know water on to boil on the stove you put the spaghetti in there and then you just never go back to get it that sort of thing um i've seen residents who have come in from the hospital and they went for a walk to go just pick something up from the quick store up the road and then could not find their way back home they just completely forgot where they were um so it's it's those sorts of things not necessarily to that extreme of getting lost while you're out walking but those little like i just can't remember these things that at one point were just normal Mm, almost like muscle memory behaviors right um and you know when when someone notices those things when they're living out in the community this is where it's really important to have family that can advocate for you i know not everybody's fortunate to have that but um as people age, those regular routine cognitive screens don't happen as much okay. in their PCP appointments, at least in the, the states. Um, so being aware of those changes to then advocate for more of a cognitive test is really important because, um, you know, things could get missed and, you know, where there is the stereotype of, well, when we get old, we forget things like that's, that's not normal aging, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be normal aging to forget things as you're getting older. Um, so being aware of that and making sure to advocate to a primary care provider that this is getting worse is really important in getting diagnosed early on so that you can know that you've got it and can then use the tools to. Yeah. So um, there's, so there's like a lot of other things, like if you, catch it early there's i'm assuming more that you can do definitely early definitely yeah yeah um it's, that seems to be a very common thing again in older persons i remembering uh, when the podcast i did with Aaron jeffins um was talking about like falls and how mm-hmm. like falls isn't a part of aging like correct there's this assumption that oh you're old you fall over that's yeah. not normal 
and it yep. doesn't have to be. And where where Correct. this stereotype is making us settle for less than than we yes. need to be, which isn't yes. good. Yes. yes. Yeah. There is an Instagram account called Old Not Weak, and it is excellent at showcasing how older adults can in fact still participate in regular human adult things and it's not about oh well i'm old i can't do these things but you know they they show videos of some adults who are in their 80s like deadlifting weights i just saw this running and like doing all these things that like i think stereotypically we look at and we're like oh my word like that person's basically a superhero because they're doing this and it's it's just because they're engaging their body well throughout the duration of their adult life you know um this guy's but absolutely, 73 I, and he just deadlifted 530, uh, 523 pounds. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. I don't even know if I could do yeah. that now. Used to be able to That's do, how I feel, now. yeah. <laughs> and he's twice my age. I'm, yeah. I feel very emasculated now. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that's, and again, that's like, I guess one of the, because like uh, through my previous life with powerlifting and stuff, like I've known the benefits, particularly with falls, in that, like, muscle mass is a massive indicator on, like, mm-hmm. falls risk as you get older. Mm-hmm. Are there similar signs like that for dementia? Like, is there anything in particular that, you know, I can, you know, people could be doing now? Like, I know they talk about one of the, and I don't know whether this could be complete old wives' tales, but one of the things that they used to promote a few years ago for like, oh, to ward off dementia was to learn another language. Is there stuff yeah, like mean, that, that, you know, people that can speak multiple languages are less likely to get dementia and that kind of thing? It's really interesting because while those things engage all that neuroplasticity, some of the people that I've treated are brilliant, brilliant people, like highly educated in multiple languages, politics, mathematics, all of these things that like are well above my head as far as understanding. Um, And weirdly people who are really, really intelligent are often diagnosed, not often, but in my experience are the ones that are like in their fifties that have dementia, which just feels so unfair. Um, So, you know, I, I don't know really how that would translate to like the global population. Like in a sense, I think certainly engaging your brain well and nourishing your brain well is going to help you to have that longevity. But if you've got some kind of genetic predisposition that we don't fully understand yet to a point, it's like you can only do so much and what's going to happen is going to happen at the same time. So it's very vast and very, curious right how it all yeah plays I, did out. Wonder when, I remember when they were, like they, uh, there was an app or something that used to like teach people languages and that was where they were advertising it that was one of their things was like what off dimension i'm like i've actually heard yeah. that like before but i'm like i don't other than like doing there was another thing it was like doing any sort of like brain games like sudoku and stuff and I'm right like, right but once you learnt the process like Sudoku in particular is a very simple process. Once you've learnt the basics of it, like you're not really engaging much of your brain in order to right, do it. It just becomes like one, another rote activity. One tiny yeah. little portion of your brain that's actually engaged in order to do that activity. 
Right. Yeah. So, I don't think there's there's this foolproof equation of no. like if I do this thing, then I'm not going to get dementia. Right. Um, certainly, I'm not saying don't challenge your brain ever again. You know, because all hope is lost. That's not what we're saying either. Yeah. But. Um, but I, wa- just, I wonder if it's a, a bigger impact looking at, like we talked about before, like the physical stuff. So healthy eating, exercise, mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. get the blood pumping up there. Uh, yeah. Yep. Would have a bigger impact than, you know, trying to do a Sudoku every day to stop dementia right. kind of thing. Right. Right. Well, and it just being out of the hospital more, you know, longer, people who are you know, getting pneumonia a lot or falling a lot, like they're in the hospital all mm. the time. And so their routine is totally disrupted. And so if, if they are going to develop dementia, you could argue that, that, that those prolonged hospital stays are potentially contributing to some of that degeneration sooner than maybe otherwise, yeah. uh, which I think is why it's important to look at the whole person and, um, you know, even for ourselves, like think about all the aspects of the inner workings of your body and maintaining health in all of them so that you, you aren't putting yourself at risk for, you know, prolonged hospitalizations that maybe could have been avoided if you didn't have that fall or, you know, you were up and moving more. So mm. you didn't get pneumonia or things like that. Um, again, not that there's this perfect equation that's going to prevent anything bad from ever happening to you. That's not the case, but I do think hospitals aren't the most stimulating environments usually though i mean i've, <laughs> right. only, I've only had one stay in hospital like a couple of years ago and it was so boring and there's just yeah. white walls and blue curtains yes. and yes i'm like there's real like I, I didn't have my own stuff like my own laptop and my own phone exactly and stuff like there's actually nothing to do exactly if you, yeah, exactly you know ward that might be locked then there's even less right well, at least right. i could get up and go and you know, go for a walk around the, the grounds and stuff, but yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I guess selfishly, I'm trying to work out like what I can do. <laughs> Cause I don't necessarily have like, obviously there's, uh, there is correlation between like, you know, if there's dementia that runs in your family and that kind of stuff, like genetic predisposition, Correct. but yes. I don't, I don't have any of that, but I'm like, just recently, I'm like, my memory's just tanking. And it's probably just no sleep and stress, more than likely. But uh, that, that, that's, that's the first red, red flag for me, if I were your OT assessing. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that it's midnight and I'm up here, like, recording Correct. podcasts. Yes, that's probably it. You heard my mind, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do think it, it's quite common for, not just therapists, but, like, just people in general, to, when we're looking at the body and we're looking at health and we're looking at fitness, for some reason there's this divide that happens at the neck. Like no one mm-hmm. goes running for their brain. People go running right. for their heart health or their circulation right. or their right. muscles or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And thinking exercises to fix our brain. Right. And I'm like, that's not like, there's, no, there's nothing magic that happens at the neck that somehow Correct. separates those two. Correct. So. Yeah. And, and like, especially with a lot of the research that we, we see coming out now around mindfulness and meditation and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff where we can do exercises that essentially directly impact the brain that then have a presentation in the body. Like, so we're going the other way now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to try and get out of that, like, this is for my body and this is for my brain. Like, they're all right. the same thing. 
So right. you can go for a run or go to the gym for your brain. <laughs> exactly. It, yes. It does work like that. That's why, like, yes. you talk to anyone who's like a gym junkie and they're like, you know, it clears my head or it, yeah, you know, it helps me with my stress or whatever it is. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, everyone goes for the disco muscles instead. Yeah. Which is my, you know, like like we said, there's there is evidence for muscle mass for certain things, but it's only going to get you so far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the older, I think it's one of those things too. Like the older I get, I keep talking like I am eighty, but I'm not that old. But <laughs> the older I get, the more I actually think about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like up until you know, even recently, I'm like, oh, no, my brain's fine. It should be fine. But I'm like, well, now is the time I need to be doing things yeah, in order to try and limit some of the predisposed vulnerabilities that I might have to getting dementia in my 60s, 70s, 80s. Right, right. Other than... Are, so are there any... Uh, I guess those kind of like, I don't know what to call them, like brain games kind of thing that you do on the ward? Anything that like that that actually does have some evidence, maybe as part of an assessment or anything like that? Yeah. So, well, as far as assessments, um, I always do the MOCA with everybody, um, which is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, uh, for anyone who's not familiar. Um, and it breaks down you know, very basic areas of cognition. But when it when that translates into what I'm actually doing in treatment, like I'm never sitting there with a bunch of animals and asking someone to identify them or, you know, listing out a bunch of words and asking them to repeat them. Yeah. I like to coordinate or collaborate movement and cognition together a lot of the times. Okay. So um, having like a beach ball, where I tape, I, I write out like different questions that tap into both short and long-term memory or critical thinking or like a riddle. And I tape them all to all the different sides of the beach ball and we'll either toss it back and forth or we'll kick it up and down the hall and then randomly we'll pick it up and look at the question that's facing you and answer it. Like or, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or we'll do like, you know, we'll work on like bananagrams or Scrabble while standing on a balance pad so That's that you're getting those like proprioceptive bananagrams is kind of like the pocket version of Scrabble. So yeah. it comes in like this little pouch that looks like a banana, but it's got the same little tiles that you would see in Scrabble and yep. there's no game board. You just kind of, you, you build words off of wow. the tiles that you have. Yeah. Never heard of that, but it sounds. It's it really sounds fun. fun. It's yeah. it's great for therapy because it's so small and compact and yep. portable that you can bring it around with you throughout the whole facility. And I like it. It's really fun. Yeah, um, I find things like um, like jigsaw puzzles tend to be really great as like just a you know I'm going to set somebody up with something at the end of my session to keep them cognitively engaged because mm-hmm. you've not only got the critical thinking and the sequencing, but you've also got visual perceptual skills that are involved in that as well. And so you're, you're having to problem solve each puzzle piece that you're looking at. And so it becomes, that's less of like a rote activity, so to speak, than maybe like a word search or. Is there an attention component to dementia? Yes. Like a difficulty with attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So I guess the puzzle, depending on the size of the puzzle, I guess would probably help with that as well. 
doing um, like an exercise routine, like incorporating music into that also just stimulates those other areas of the brain that keeps those neurosynapses going. And sometimes, you know, I'll be doing arm exercises with somebody, but I'll be asking them like, oh, do you remember this song? And did you ever go see them in concert? And, do, you know, can you sing some of the words or like, you know, name all the people in the band? Like, and that's not anything that has direct that information has no direct application to my day-to-day life. Like I can certainly be safe in the community without remembering all the the names of everybody in the Beatles. Right. Um, But just tapping into some of that long-term memory and thinking through and then, you know, remembering like, Oh, when I like heard this song, I was in high school and you know, these were my friends. Like it just gets all of those sort of dusty neurosynapses that maybe weren't thought about for a while up and firing. and, And naturally you get this better, cognitive engagement in everything that you're oh, doing you use it or lose it yeah exactly exactly yeah so does this mean that you've had to educate yourself on like music from the 30s 40s 50s yes <laughs> i've become highly acquainted with music from the 50s in particular because okay. that seems to be the most uh, popular i feel like i probably know more songs from the 50s than i do from our current time period <laughs> and is, um, is this a, is, is this a strictly a work thing or is this something that you're like listening bopping out to 50s music in the car on the way home or it has absolutely infiltrated your, your spotify pod- my personal life <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so cups of tea and uh and 50s music at your place weekend, that's then. right yeah <laughs> yeah little dean martin action yeah oh, <laughs> yeah that's one thing i i've never had because yeah, I guess the population I work with kind of listen to a bit of everything, so I've never had. To. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't mind a bit of old music. I don't know fifties. Yeah. I don't know if I go back as far as the fifties, but I I could deal with the seventies. Seventies are probably yeah. where my jams at. That's a lot of the fifties and sixties are from the seventies. So yeah, right. Yeah. We have a few patients in particular in one of the buildings that I'm at. And they just, it's like Patsy Cline or die. Like they only, so the same like five Patsy Cline songs are constantly playing every morning. And like half the people in the building are like, can we please anything else? But there are these certain residents that are like, I need it. You know, and so you just, you put it on for them for an hour and they, At least they it's never relatively get tired of it. like cheery music. Yeah. 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 No one was yeah. like, there's no like death metal or anything back then. So most of the music's exactly. pretty yeah. like upbeat, and even <laughs> even the lyrics that are like not sort of like sad lyrics and stuff, they sort of right. dress them up. So it's not always that yeah. hard, to, not that easy to tell when they're you know not having a good time or whatnot. Yeah, the breakup songs from the '50s are still pretty uh, peppy. Yeah, <laughs> like the yeah. beats are. You know, you can dance to that stuff, but then you listen to the words and you're like, oh, this person's getting dumped. Like, oh boy. Maybe that's the, what they're trying to memory, like trying to remember is back when everything was a happy memory, even being dumped. Right, right. (laughs) So what's the, so the people coming into your program, even in the like short term, like is the goal... Mm -hmm that eventually they'll get discharged from your program or is it kind of like they're coming into there until the end or? So the short-term patients that come through the goal right off the bat is, can we get this person home? How, um, how short, short-term? Like roughly? T- um, I would say probably two to three weeks, sometimes okay. longer. Okay, um, if I've had someone there for less than two weeks, it's because they've, 
you know, opted for that. They've yeah. voluntarily left. Um, typically, a short-term stay is about two weeks, sometimes four, yeah. if you've got like a really complex fracture or something like that. Um, so yeah, when, when people come in for short-term, the goal right away is, can we get you home? What does your home life look like? You know, very typical OT yeah. kind of questions. Um, and nine times out of 10, those people will go home successfully. Um, we always, you know, people get home health always when they discharge to yeah. a home setting, um, just to make sure that that transition is yeah. seamless. Right. Um, as far as being in program, you know, if someone comes in short-term rehab and it's determined they need to stay long-term care, um, a lot of times what will happen, they'll come in and they'll be under what's, you know, their Medicare Part A benefit, which was their skilled benefit. They'll transition to long-term care. So now they're under likely Medicaid with a Medicare B benefit for therapy. And so we'll pick them back up under their Medicare Part B just to make sure that they're integrating into the long-term care unit you know, seamlessly. And then the plan is we're discharging you from therapy, but we've educated the staff and you on how to just seamlessly continue with whatever setups we think are going to, you know, work the best as a team. Um, I do have some people that are, you know, I evaluated them as a long-term care resident and they benefit from more of like a restorative or a maintenance program. So I see them, you know, one to two times a week and I document, you know, they really need this level of skilled intervention because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, insurance is satisfied with that. So they'll continue to pay for some sort of maintenance program like that. But typically, if I'm evaluating somebody who's a long-term care resident, who's going to stay long-term care, I'm probably going to see them for, you know, one to two months and then discharge them back, you know, back to the unit, so to speak, where the the staff are solely responsible for doing whatever we've recommended. So you're still, on terms of like the referral process, looking at your services separate from the living side of the Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the therapy companies that I work for are contracted within the facility. So I'm not actually hired by any of the facilities Uh, that I work at. Okay. So it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic because that would be the big difference between there and here. Yeah. And not every facility here in the States is like that. There are, you know, like private run facilities that have their own rehab teams, but there are several large rehab companies that contract throughout all of America. Um, And so you've got these like really big corporate offices with all these big, you know, HR departments and hiring recruiters and all these things, you know. Um, But it, it does make for an interesting dynamic because your patient and your, your residents are considered your customer, but then the facility itself is also mm. considered your customer. And so you're you're kind of balancing between yeah. those two. And ultimately, you're going to do what's best for the resident, right? Yeah. Um, you have to. But there are some instances where, you know, the building wants to go one way and therapy thinks it should be another way, but the building is your customer. And so you make your recommendations and then you say, Godspeed, this is what I think you should do. And if you take it, you take it. And if you don't, you don't, you know. Complex. But it is, yeah, yeah. And it can be good and bad sometimes. You know, it, it has pros and cons. But Yeah, your your health system over there just, the more I learn about it, the more I'm confused. <laughs> it's, just, it's, uh, it's just so different from everywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and just like we were talking about earlier with staffing, 
I'm strictly PRN right now, yep. but I'm working basically full-time hours because most of the departments are staffed hundred percent by PRN staff and the, except for the rehab director that works full-time because there's just nobody that wants to work full-time in these facilities, like, which like works great for me as a PRN because I can, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So we've got mostly PRN and travel nurses and therapists yeah. and it's, it just makes for a really interesting dynamic as far as healthcare is concerned. You'd have massive <laughs> you know? staff turnover surely. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which would be, would, like we were talking about earlier, it would make it very hard to foster any kind of consistent environment in a place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think, like, the majority of places here, uh, like wards and that kind of stuff, would have, well, I, I guess the goal would be to have a full complement of full FTE staff, like full-time staff, and then mm-hmm. when there was shortages, they'd bring in the PRN staff. But right, they don't like doing that because PRN staff are insanely expensive compared to full-time staff correct i can't imagine a full unit being funded i don't even i think they would i don't think they'd ever do that here i think they'd shut the unit down before that happened yeah yeah mainly because it's It's, i guess it's state money too it's not private money over here but still that's that's nuts it's crazy yeah and i mean i two years ago if you had told me this is how i would be operating as a therapist i would not have believed you you know but it's it's just the way of <laughs> the way of the world over here yeah yeah I'm, yeah exactly it works out for me because i'm you know able to make my own schedule and making that pr and rate while basically working full-time hours but so is there scope for you to be able to like not saying you will but if you ever wanted to like sort of go out on your own and contract into these or are they strictly contracted by these big companies um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much opportunity I would have necessarily mm. just because most of the buildings that I know of, at least in my immediate area right now are already staffed by these big contract yeah. companies. Um, I think, you know, I, I could probably do something that's more like a, a consultation basis for like yeah. families. Um, so that wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be billed as an OT session with traditional yeah. CPT codes, um, but it would be still using that OT perspective to just make recommendations, yeah. um, which could be an option, you know, and I, I know of some therapists in other states who are already doing that sort of thing. Um, and I think it's it's still OT, even if it's not billed in yeah. that way, you know. But And is your company, do they provide all the staff for that? that building or is it just the rear like the just therapy health? just the therapy it's okay. just therapy so like yep. the nursing staff and that sort of stuff come from somewhere else they're all hired by the building itself okay so they they okay but they're still prn yep. well so Some of them. the the nurses yeah it kind of a lot of them are travelers some of them are full-time um yep. in certain so buildings have a better nurse. retention than others but for as far as the rehab department specifically just about every single rehab department that i am a part of is prn staff mostly except for the rehab director that's fascinating isn't it it says a lot (laughs) yeah it does it really does yeah yeah that's odd i don't know the the like even things like travel therapy over there is just not a thing here like i know Mm. it's a big 
I see lots of people talking about it on like Instagram and right, um, right, and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, it's just not a thing here. If you want to travel, you just get a job somewhere else. Like, if you don't right. have these agencies right. that are like getting jobs for you, and I'm like, right, find a job. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, so many differences. I find it fascinating. So, I can't remember if there's anything else we wanted to cover. Is um, what else do we? Is there anything else you wanted to cover? I don't think so. I mean, we talked about really like what OT can do for dementia and what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything else. Yeah. I think one thing I will say just to anybody who's an OT in really any setting other than a pediatric setting, um, dementia oftentimes goes undiagnosed for a long time yeah so even if you're working in a hospital setting or an outpatient setting and you get that one you know potentially older adult maybe you know middle-aged adult who's kind of acting sort of strange um like cognitively they may have dementia that's just not diagnosed and i think that's why it's really important for all of us as OTs working in adult settings to know what dementia is and Mm. to know how to treat people with dementia because we're all likely going to encounter it at some point or another. And um, the more you know about how to just foster a sense of comfort and good rapport in somebody with dementia, you're going to get better outcomes in all of these settings. You don't have to work in long-term care for that to be true. So, Would you recommend if people do... Like, say, come across a client, but they're not 100% sure, like, the mocker is a good place to start? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I've done people, that Most myself. people I know are pretty familiar with the mocker. I know it's, it's quite commonly used over here yes. uh, in a variety yes. of settings, and it's yes. easy to access as well, which is a big a big uh, bonus for a lot of OT assessments. So, um, yeah, maybe if you – I think it might even be free to access – I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it's free. Yeah, I, think, I think it is, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, yeah, if you have a, a client and you're not 100% sure or you want a, some at least a screen for some guidance, mm-hmm. uh, run through a mocker and, and see what your results come. But I know right. in Australia one of the things, and I'm presuming you could do the same in pretty much any country, is if, you, if you're not sure, ask. Like, track down an OT who or any therapist who works in a, a memory unit or you want some advice or um, most services would have or districts would have some equivalent health service that works with people, older persons and could probably give you some advice as well, I would assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on, having a chat. I know it's we literally, I, I was trying to work this out with you all. We tried to tee this up in about November and then yes. I got sick <laughs> and then other things came up and we finally made it happen almost we six months did later. did the thing, yeah. <laughs> we finally remembered. No. Finally did it, yeah. I know, yeah, we, we actually remembered to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, we forgot all this time and now we've remembered. <laughs> so there, thanks so much. Uh, I anything where can people find you if they they obviously you've got your instagram account which pumps out epic content so where can where can people find you in the world wide web yes so instagram the memory unit ot i have a youtube account the memory unit ot and i also have a website the memory unit ot.com i post a lot of blog posts that go more in depth about the things that i talk about on instagram 
Um, and I'm always down to answer questions. Anybody shoots me a DM or an email. Um, obviously, we can't go into specifics about patients, but I am here to answer questions as they come. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, well, I was going to say getting up early, but it's probably not that early now. It's, um, it's about 1030 for me now in the morning. Yeah, oh, that's all right. It's not too bad. No. It's about time for second coffee. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. and uh, I'll Thank you, you so soon. much for having me on. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.